0: Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Now, one of us most maligned groups in our culture today might surprise you, actually. It's men, particularly evangelical men, men who profess a strong faith. The secular worldview has coined the phrase toxic masculinity. It's, sta- it's a statement that That masquerades really the fact that the society seems to punish men for just acting like men. Of course, that brings up the question, well, how should men be acting? And certainly this is what's happening in our schools where little boys are being punished just for acting like little boys. Again, what does it mean to be a little boy? So where did this idea of masculinity being toxic originate? What's the impact, and how do Christian men shatter the negative stereotypes? Best-selling author and professor, um, Nancy Piercy. She's the, uh, a professor at Houston Christian University. She's a scholar in residence there. But she answers all and more of those questions in her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And she joins me now. Welcome. Professor, Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. It's good to be here. Well, this is a fascinating book, and certainly it's timely. Uh, all of the things we have about uh, masculinity do seem to come out negative. And not only that, if you look at the positive uh, men in TV and, and, and movies, they're really a little bit more feminine than they are um, masculine. And there is this sort of... Uh, like you say, toxic worker masculinity. Now, you write in your book that masculine traits are not intrinsically toxic; they are good when directed to virtuous ends. So, where did this idea of them being toxic come from?
1: Yes, well, that's the whole purpose of my book. Is that I wanted to ask, you, where, how do we get to the bottom of this? Mm-hmm. I was really, tr- I was really set off on my research partly by seeing how incredibly acceptable it's become to express hostility to men. The, the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? <laughs> and I thought, really? In a respected mainstream publication? Or a Huffington Post editor wrote, My New Year's resolution is to kill all men. Wow. Y- you can buy t-shirts now that say, So Many Men, So Little Ammunition. Wow. And there are books out with titles like, I Hate Men and No Good Men. And are men necessary? So my first goal in the book was just to say, where, does, where is this coming from? How can we oppose it? How can we counter it? You know, you really have to look at where it came from and how it developed. And even men are jumping on the bandwagon. A male author wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer.
0: Well, it's almost as if they've given into... This 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 cultural bias and the idea that that you can buy a T-shirt that says so many men, so little ammunition. I mean, if you if you were to say the opposite and men were saying so many women, you know, so so little time or so little ammunition, I mean, the, the effects in the society would just be they would just be. You know vitriolic against this and all sorts of protests against this but yet because it's directed at men it's okay it's accepted
1: yeah so one of my female students for example said well we always hear about the things that women face like misogyny and sexism and discrimination but we assume that men are okay well the men are not okay yeah boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten up through college More women than men are graduating from college. More women than men are graduating from graduate school and even professional schools like law and medicine. Men are falling behind on all sorts of measures, such as men are more likely to commit suicide. Men are more likely to be mentally ill. Men are more likely to be addicted to to drugs and alcohol. Um, The male unemployment level today is at depression era levels. Wow. That was a shocker to me. They don't show up in the statistics because they've stopped even looking for work. So researchers had to dig deeper. But male unemployment is at depression era levels, and male life expectancy is even going down. Women's is staying the same. So it's not a general trend. Mm. It's only male life expectancy that has gone down in recent years. A magazine called The New Scientist said the major demographic now for early death is being male. Wow. So I do think it's time for us to start saying, you know, how can so- society give better support to men? Isn't it time to think, you know, how can we support men and boys in a more effective way today?
0: You know, it's not just happening in a vacuum. This is one of the things that really struck me about your book, which blew me away. And anybody with a with a male child should be very, very uh, wary of this is because how it affects little boys. There was a quote um from Michael Thompson, he's a he's the co-author of Raising Cain, Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys. He said, uh, starting in kindergarten, the classroom is set up to reward girls who are on average better at verbal skills and fine motor skills like drawing and using scissors. Girls' behavior becomes the gold standard. Boys are being treated like defective girls. That blows my mind. And how does that affect boys in the long term, if that's true?
1: Yes, well, and there are books on the subject now. I mean, it is becoming fairly well-known. There are books like The Boy Crisis or The Trouble with Boys and Why Boys Fail. It's really time for us to be addressing this. How does it affect them as they grow older? There was an interesting sociological study that found that men are torn, in a sense, between two scripts. This was a uh, sociologist who is well-known in his field, and so he gets invited to speak all around the world. Mm-hmm. And he decided to turn this into an experiment. And so he asked young boys, young men and boys, um, two questions. Mm-hmm. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? Mm. In other words, if you're at a funeral and in, in the eulogy, they say he was a good man. Mm-hmm. Boys and young men all around the world had no trouble answering this, from Australia to uh, Germany to Brazil, whatever they said, oh, well, that's obvious. Uh, Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, uh, be a provider, be a protector, be generous, be responsible, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so the sociologists would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would say, it's our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. And then Mm. he would follow up with a second question. He'd say okay what does it mean if i say man up be a real man and the young men would say oh no that's completely different that means and i'll read you their actual words so you know this is not my words <laughs> it means be tough strong never show weakness win at all costs suck it up be competitive get rich and get laid Wow. So there are two competing scripts for masculinity. Men are made in God's image and they do know innately what it means to be a good man. They do know that their unique masculine strengths are not given them just to get get whatever they want, you know, but to provide, protect and take care of the people that they love. But culture imposes this real man script on them that contains a lot of the traits that of course we consider toxic. In other words, uh, entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. Uh, when when it's disconnected from the moral vision of the good man, it can slide into being toxic. And so, what I suggest is that this gives us a, a better strategy for mm-hmm. dealing with these issues. Instead of accusing men of being toxic, you know, most people do not respond well to being accused of being toxic. Um, But instead, we can affirm them for what they innately know is the good man. What does it mean to be a good man? How can we affirm them, support them, encourage them in what they already know is the good man? And that gives us a much more positive approach to these issues.
0: You know, the irony is that the toxic masculinity definition really comes from a secular culture who would label Christian men as the epitome of toxic masculinity. That's the irony of it all.
1: Yes, so this is what I uh, focus on at the beginning of my book. I put it right at the front because in a sense, I deal with the problem and I deal with the solution. Mm -hmm. You know, The problem is that men are being accused of being toxic and the solution actually turns out to be a Christian view of masculinity. And this is not just church talk, you know, rah-rah from a sermon. This is actually a result of serious scientific data from the social sciences. So let me start with some of the accusations. You're quite right that, if anything, Christian men are accused of being the, uh, the ultimate example yeah, of yeah. being toxic males. Because anyone who holds to any notion of male headship or male authority in the home— and I ha- it was very easy to find quotes, but I'll give you just two of them— mm-hmm. um, this is, this is a quote from, from a Christian publication, Lauren. Wow. <laughs> it is no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. Well, the second quote is from the co-founder of the Church Two movement. She said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. The problem with these accusations is that they ignore the data from social science, it turns out that it's psychologists and sociologists looked at these accusations and said, well, where's the evidence? Mm-hmm. Where's your evidence? So they went out and did the studies, and they found just the opposite, that the media message is completely wrong, and that evangelical family men who attend church regularly, so you know, really committed, authentic Christian men, actually test out as the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. Mm. So compared to the average American family man, evangelical men are the most loving to their wives. And by the way, yes, they do interview the wives separately, which is (laughs) important. (laughs) And, And so what they're really saying is that the wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and appreciation. Evangelical men are the most engaged with their children, both in shared activities like sports or church youth group and in discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce, less likely than secular couples. And here's the real surprise. Evangelical couples have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any major group in America. And so they completely contradict the media message that, that we're getting today. They have the lowest rate, lower than secular men. So this is the message that's not getting out there. This is really the main reason I wrote the book is because this material is still hidden away in the academic sociological literature. I had to read primarily academic journals to pull out this material. And I thought, shoot, nobody knows this. Even in the Christian world, we don't know this, that Christian men are actually testing out so well. But why and do so, we
0: keep? But why do we keep hearing this? This the, this that Christian Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of society. Why is that stati- and legitimate, reputable places like Pew comes out with that kind of number?
1: Yes, Well, yes. In my research, I found that it is the most widely quoted statistic among Christian leaders today. So the researchers went back to the data, and they separated out truly authentically committed Christian men who attend church regularly from nominal Christian men. Mm. So it's the men who attend church regularly who have the high numbers, but the nominal Christian men, by the way, my students don't even know what that word means anymore. (laughs) So I have to explain (laughs) nominal means in name only because N O M is Latin for name. Um, and so these are men who might, in a survey like this, they might check the Baptist box, right? Right. But who actually attend church rarely, if at all. And they test out shockingly different. In fact, they, they fit all of the toxic definitions. They are the least loving with their wives. Their, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They have the, They are the least engaged with their children they are the most likely to divorce of any group in america higher than secular men Mm. and they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any group in america higher than secular men wow so this is really shocking any number that puts these two groups together you know you have evangelical men that are better than secular men and then evangelical men who who claim the label at least right Mm -hmm. they claim the identity of evangelical, but they actually test out worse than secular men. So clearly, any uh, study that that puts these two numbers together are kind of they're going to come out with a misleading statistic, and that's what's happened. People did were not making this distinction. Yeah, it, and it really suggests um, people have asked me, okay, why why do Nominal men. Why would they be even worse than secular men? <laughs> you know, my
0: my thing is, I'm hearing Ephesians mm-hmm. six in my mind. I'm really hearing the Ephesians, that whole thing about wives. You know, be you know subject to your husbands and husbands. Right, all that whole section there, and that's what secular people have a problem with. But if you're a nominal Christian man, you take that, but tack it on to some of those ugly. Masculine tendencies, and voila, you have a toxic male.
1: Exactly. So nominal men are men who take the language. Of headship and submission from the scripture, but they infuse the meaning from the secular world. They infuse definitions from the secular script for masculinity, but then they also feel permission from the church to act this way. Wow! Right. So, and so that's why they end up actually testing out worse than secular men because they take the secular definition and give it a Christian veneer. So, so to counter it, we really do have to know where the secular definition comes from, and that's where the rest of my book you know, is, is seeking to ask, you know, where did that definition even come from? So, Because we have to to, to address people who are misleading the, the public, namely the nominal men, we have to ask, where are they getting their definitions from? And of course, they're just baptizing secular meanings.
0: Yeah, I want to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, but I want to come back and talk about the colonial men that and the industrial revolution, because I think that's where the turning point, a lot of it has come from. But we'll be right back with uh, Nancy Piercy, um Professor Nancy Piercy, in just a minute on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Um, which is a phenomenal book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And what we're finding, Nancy, is that this idea of toxic masculinity targeted at Christian men actually comes from a secular worldview. Um, And one of the things that they point to is colonial men, uh, that they were strict, that they were... uh, um, you know, abusive, or you know, they subjected their their women, and of course, The Handmaid's Tale is one of those stories that comes out of that. But you you really blow this away. I said so this is not the way colonial men actually were. What did your research find?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because it it is so contrary to what we normally hear. But colonial men worked day in, day out with their wives and children on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so they had to be gentle and patient, and we find that in the literature of the time, actually, says that men, the the major expectation of masculinity back then was much more of a caretaking role, mm. uh, much more of a of, of uh, uh, a fa- fathers of the community was the common phrase back then. You were not supposed to only be a father of your family, but you were supposed to bring that fathering ethos out into the community as well. And even their notion of authority was different. You know, we tend to have a fairly negative view of authority, I mm-hmm. think, today. But back then, they had a very specific meaning to the term, and it meant the person who was responsible for the common good. In other words, you look out for what's good for you, I look out for what's good for me, but who looks out for the common good, whether it's the marriage relationship or the family the church, the civil society, whatever, who's responsible for the common good of the whole? And that was what authority was for. In fact, their favorite word back then was disinterested, meaning if you're in a position of authority, you don't look out for your own interest. You look out for the interest of the whole. I think most of us would be happy with that kind of authority even today.
0: What about the relationship he, with their wives? I think that's really in particular what's very interesting to me because, you know, obviously, you know, we have this view that they were treating wives as slaves almost. I mean, that's the idea we have.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, even in a Christian university, I have to tell you, uh, I, all of my students say, I have never heard anything good about the Puritans until I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> and what I found, I mean, I was surprised myself, to, to be honest. I found uh, you know, letters and other literature that we have from the Puritans showed that they had very loving, very warm, very affectionate husband-wife relationships. And they also argued very explicitly that women are equal. And one uh, Puritan minister, for example, said, oh, sure, in, you know, in the human, human customs, in human culture, of course, men and women are treated differently. But spiritually, we have to recognize that they are equal and m- much of the literature of the day said of course women are spiritually equal to men and in fact here's here's a real shocker do you know the first law ever passed against wife beating was by the puritans wow 1641 massachusetts <laughs> bay colony Passed the first law ever against wife beating. It was quickly amended to include husband beating.
0: You know, sometimes <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, we do get a little angry at them. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then it was amended for you know, beating children and servants. But the main point is, it was the Puritans who passed the first law against wife beating, and we have sermons from that time where they preached against treating your wife poorly, uh, treating, uh, beating your wife, abusing your wife. They said that's a sacrilege. Literally, that was one of the terms they used. That's a sacrilege. That's contrary to your faith. You shouldn't do that. Well see, this, so this sort of
0: destroys the whole concept that that biblical um equality, uh, biblical relationships between men and women really are one of equality, not one of, 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 of submission. And and yes. but, but the idea but there, there's such a nuanced understanding. If you try to explain to this nuance between, you know, the Ephesians 6, you know, when Paul talks about this to a secular person, they never get beyond wives submit to your husbands. They just never get beyond that.
1: And that's why I resort to quoting from the academic literature. I'm not I'm not a theologian, and I don't argue theology. I just say let's look at how they actually behave. Yeah. Let's look at how Christian couples work out. Let me give you a quote on this. My go-to sociologist, um, the one who did the largest study, is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote an article in the New York Times wow. of all places, <laughs> in which he said, and I'll give you his quote. He says, "It turns out that that the happiest of all wives in America." And, of course, they're looking particularly at the wives because the assumption is that any any form of male headship is going to be oppressive and abusive and tyrannical and patriarchal. So they're looking especially at the wives. What do they respond? It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services with their husbands have high-quality marriages. So this is a finding of social science, that that the wives are happiest. And in fact, Brad Wilcox, by the way, he then turns to his fellow academics, who are, of course, mostly uh, secular, and he says to them, academics need to cast aside their prejudices. I love this. (laughs) Academics need to cast aside their prejudices against religious conservatives and against evangelicals in particular. Conservative. Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is that Christianity does have a practical answer to reconciling the sexes, as I put it in the subtitle of my book, Mm -hmm. that has stood up to rigorous empirical testing. And so we should be bold in bringing it into the public square and helping people to realize that the, the, the public narrative has been wrong and that the sociological and psychological data totally undermines it, and shows that Christianity. You know, we don't have to argue the meaning of those terms. Let's just look at how, in fact, Christian men behave. The studies show that their their wives are the happiest of all wives in America.
0: Well, that's you know because it brings out then uh, what what Paul says after wives submit to your husbands. It talks about husbands submitting to Christ. And gave his life up for the church, and so the, uh, the the greater onus, actually, biblically speaking, is on men because they have to sacrifice their entire lives for their for their husband for for their um, for their wives, which is a whole different kind of understanding of it.
1: Yes, in fact, you know, people, you'll you'll appreciate this, Lauren. This has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written. Wow! And I was surprised at that because my. Previous book was Love Thy Body, which deals with questions like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism, and I thought that would be the most controversial. But in fact, this one has proved to be even more controversial. For for example, I I, I taught it in my classes, and I did a lot of reading groups, and they would tell their friends about it. And their friends, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? (laughs) With that tone, you know, whose side is she on? Like, you know, is is she some male bashing feminist or she's some angry reactionary? Yeah. (laughs) You know, the assumption is you have to be one or the other. And so and and my classes too. uh, my my students, uh, I have even in a Christian university, most of my young female students identify as feminists and they would get triggered. If I said anything positive about men, they would interpret that as somehow denigrating women. And my male students were equally defensive when I said I was writing a book on masculinity. One of my male shot, my male students shot back, "What masculinity? It's been beaten out of us." <laughs> so, so it <laughs> turns it, it turns out that even in the Christian world, um, people want to pigeonhole you. And and here's one of the more interesting things I found from the academic literature. Um, it turns out. If men and women follow the biblical script of love and respect, it almost doesn't matter what their view of authority is. Mm. Brad Wilcox, who I've already quoted, literally says, in my research, I did not really find a difference between complementarian, which means people who hold some sort of male authority, and egalitarian marriages. They were both equally happy. Complementarian marriages were not more abusive or oppressive, and egalitarian marriages were not happier. And there's a, there's a non-Christian uh, psychologist who says the same thing. He's probably the best-known marriage psychologist in the nation, John mm-hmm. Gottman. Uh, he, he's done the most empirical research. He used to be a mathematician, so he, he measures everything. It's very quantitative. <laughs> he's, he's famous for being able to predict with 93.6 accuracy whether a couple will divorce after watching wow. them for about 15 minutes really and he's yeah, amazing right that's how that's how he became famous and here's what he said he said he's been he's been researching for 50 years and he says i get people in my practice who believe in some sort of you know men should be in control of their marriage and i get egalitarian marriages and he said you know what it doesn't really matter no matter what your belief is on gender roles if you believe in love and respect and he says specifically if husbands are emotionally mature enough (laughs) to respect their wives, then they're going to be fine. He said, it turns out your your concept of gender roles does not make much of a difference. And so that was one of the most surprising things in my research is to find out it, it depends a whole lot more on whether you're as he put it, emotionally mature, whether you know how to show love and respect to your spouse. Well, one of the things though, I, that
0: I'm wondering, has the church become feminized in that sense? Is it because is, is it gearing towards the, the women rather than men? I mean, you're talking about how men are not as likely to go to 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 sit in the pews as women. So that's a problem right there.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, the average church in America is about 60, 40, 60 percent women and 40% men. And yes, I do think that that's a problem right there. Um, and it actually goes back to the early church. The Christian church has been that way from the beginning. And it has surprisingly always had a difficult time attracting men. And other religions are not that way, like Islam or even Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, do not have that problem. So it does make us question, why is it? Um, and I'll, I'll give you a personal story. Mm-hmm. I have an earlier book called Total Truth, and when uh, it was sent out to a design company, right? That the publishers contract these things out. It was sent out to a design company, and uh, they just looked at the fact that it was written by a female author. Yeah, <laughs> and they uh, designed a cover with a teacup on a doily, <laughs> <laughs> with with uh, the title was in baby blue with with curly Q font. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and I had to say, I had to remind the publisher, uh, this is not a woman's book. If you've, <laughs> if you've read any of my books, none of my books are women's books, so to speak. So, yeah, it, it turns out that, that churches and Christian bookstores, Christian publishers tend to design things for what they think, at least, are women's taste, just because of more women than men who are in the pews, who shop at Christian bookstores, who listen to Christian radio and so on. And so, there was a, a a surprising um experiment done by a man named David Moreau. He's a psychologist mm-hmm. a psychologist. He wrote a book called "Why Men Hate Going to Church," which is a delightful title. <laughs> <laughs> and what he did is he did a, an experiment where he he put out he he did a list of characteristics, character traits um for, and said which which one of these are more likely to be true of Jesus and his followers?" Well, ninety percent of the people chose what were stereotypically feminine traits, like love and caring and nurture and connection. Mm-hmm. And they did not choose the more stereotypically masculine traits like achievement, you know and uh, and confidence and competence and so on. And he uses that as as an example of how churches are, in fact, giving a more feminized message wow. and, with sometimes very simple adjustments, you can make your message more male friendly, and he he suggests a lot of ways that churches can do that. And I think that that's a great idea. I do think that churches should accommodate their language and their decor and their and their music to male taste. By the way, um, even my book, I had to think about that because when I I said people's first response was, um, "Whose side is she on?" Well, the second question <laughs> was always, "And why is a woman writing a book on masculinity well, anyway?" That's,
0: that's that's kind of the, the the elephant in the room here uh, when we're talking about the book. Why is a woman writing a book on toxic masculinity?
1: Well, I do start the book with my own story, Amanda, <laughs> which you know is still even now still feels a bit vulnerable because I have not been public about my own story in the mm-hmm, past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a very abusive father, um, severely physically abusive and wow. in, in books on abuse. They sometimes ask, you know, was it open hand or closed fist? Wow. It was closed fist. Wow. You know, he was punching us and kicking us. And, uh, yeah, all, all of my siblings, you know, have deep signs of trauma. And so in a sense, as I put it in the introduction to the book, I've been writing this book my whole life in yeah. the sense that I've had to work through. What is a positive view of masculinity? What is a healthy view of masculinity? And I'm I'm happy to report, um, I had a podcast with a psychologist last week, and he said, I started reading the book and I thought, oh no, uh oh, it's a, it's, going, it's going to be an angry woman. You know, she's he was abused as a child and now she hates men and he said as i got through your book i realized no it's the opposite it's very positive and very supportive to men it is clear he said as a psychologist i was glad to hear him say this yes it is clear that you've really worked through this you've worked through to very profound spiritual emotional and psychological healing and it he said that really comes out in the book and so i'm, I'm happy that it does uh he said it's very male supportive you know, very, very, very man friendly in your tone and, and in the content.
0: You know, we have a problem with fatherlessness in this country. Uh, incredible amounts of people, young people, What? 85 percent what, of youth in prison uh, grew up without fathers. Uh, you've got so many kids growing up with a father in the household. And even sometimes when they have a father in the household that uh, that is emotionally uh, disconnected from their children, that can almost be worse. Uh, but this understanding of what real masculinity is, how much how much has fatherlessness and, and how much does that contribute to the fatherlessness that we're seeing today? This sort of toxic war on masculinity.
1: Yes, yes. I, In my book, I say clearly the most important long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is fathers being more connected to their sons. I quote a psychiatrist who says, we're not going to get a better class of men until we get a better class of fathers, you know, fathers who don't walk out on the job. So I do look at some of the historical roots of that, though. Uh, uh, Oh, to put a number on it, by the way, 40% of children in America are growing up apart from their natural fathers. Wow. And many of them never know their natural father. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world what a thing to be known for you know highest rate of wow. um and so yes certainly young boys growing up without their fathers is a key part of why men are having trouble and and i used to work for prison fellowships so i'm with you on that those numbers by the way that certainly 80 to 90% of men behind bars are coming from fatherless homes so i look at the history of that so, uh, you mentioned earlier and we, we didn't follow up on it but the um the Industrial Revolution was a key turning point mm-hmm. because before that, you know, men are working all day with their husbands men are working all day with their wives and children. Right. And so they are training their sons in adult skills. And men were expected to be just involved just as involved as mothers with their children. Yeah, you After give you indust- this
0: number which is just blew me away, ninety percent of families. Had this sort of arrangement. I mean, this is this is a total game changer in understanding the relationship those fathers must have had with their with their sons and daughters
1: and wives. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the industrial revolution takes work out of the home. Of course, men have to follow their work on the, out of the home. The family industry is broken up. It it shatters the relationship between husbands and wives. But more important for what we're talking about, it shatters the relationship between fathers and sons. And for the first time, boys are growing up without a day-in, day-out model of what it means to be a man. I mean, w- girls suffered too, but at least they had their mothers in the home. Right. But boys did not have their fathers in the home. And you could see it already in the 19th century. Already, um, the the first generation of fathers out of the home, the literature at the time begins to lament the fact that fathers were no longer raising their sons, that fathers were becoming irrelevant and even incompetent as parents. You know, Mm. they're no longer connected to what's going on in the home. They're no longer aware of the family dynamics. They're no longer connected to their children's needs and interests. And so they begin to be portrayed, well, what we see today, right, in the media when fathers are mocked and ridiculed and made the butt of the joke. Um, in, in so much of our media and television and ads and so on. Well, that begins already in the 19th century because if men are not connected anymore, they're seen as incompetent as parents. And boys also, this contributes very much to the the secularization of the masculine script because boys are growing up without the supervision of their fathers either. They have mm. a lot of unsupervised time. the The leading psychologist of the day said... Never before in American history have boys been growing up so wild and so half orphaned. That phrase, half orphaned, you know, because their fathers are not there anymore. Right. And he said, they're being left up to female guidance in the home, the church, and the school. So women, you know, mothers tried to step in, fill in the gap of these missing fathers. But of course, boys could see that, that women's life was quite different from men's. And so asking, boys to follow a, a women's moral script yeah. seem to be Asking them to be effeminate,
0: you know. And so it's it's so funny because I re, I hear these phrases from from women, you know. It's like wait till your father gets home.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> wait till your father gets home because that's you know. And Bill Cosby, I know he's you know under a lot of you know criticism for you know, the whole hashtag me too thing. But his whole routine about when the father gets home and that whole line of saying you know I I brought you into this world I can take you out kind of thing. <laughs> it was it was the idea that the father had the authority to discipline a child, and that was it. That was the rule and that was the law in the household um, in, in that certain era. But, you, I mean, this whole idea of separating fathers from their sons it has to have incredible implications, not just for the family and the boys, but for society in general, of how they view a boy's responsibility, um, his, 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 his gender, you know, what is his purpose in life, really?
1: Yeah, let me give you an interesting statistic. Um, In the colonial era, most books written to parents, uh, sermons, child-rearing manuals, pamphlets, and so on, were written to the father. Mm. They were written to fathers because fathers were considered to be the primary parent. Whereas if you go into a typical bookstore today, how many books are there for fathers compared to the number of books for mothers? You know, it it shifted. It shifted after the Industrial Revolution. But before that, fathers were seen as the primary parent. So how did that affect the script for masculinity? Well, these boys who were growing up unsupervised, uh, historians call it boy culture. Mm. They developed the idea that to be a real boy uh, was to be kind of rebellious, rambunctious, rule-breaking, and so on. The, The phrase, boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah people didn't say that before. People didn't expect boys to be particularly misbehaving. They thought in fact if anything boys should be expected to be more responsible. Right. All the way all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. People thought that men were more moral than women. They said the insight into right and wrong is a rational insight and they thought that men were more rational mm-hmm. and therefore men are more moral. I see. And so all the way up until the 19th century, people thought, of course, boys should be raised is, with the expectation that they will be moral leaders, moral, moral and spiritual leaders in their home and the community. We did not have this notion that men are actually you know, more prone to sin and vice. That started in the 19th century. Wow. And in my book, I do go through several stages, um, the, how the, the secular script for masculinity got worse and worse. But let me give you just one, um, because it's um, it's the one that's most remarkable, and it's the rise of Darwinism. The rise of Darwinian evolution changed the masculine script immensely. Wow. Because up until then, it was thought that your true self is the moral, spiritual self, as I just said, you know, Mm -hmm. all the way back to the ancients. Mm -hmm. The idea was that your moral and spiritual self should be you know, it constantly in control of your animal impulses. Darwin flipped that. He said, your true self is the animal self, the oh. beast within. And so Darwinian thinkers began to say that masculinity, uh, it's, it's based on the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival. Right. And so right. that means that means that they were the ones who were ruthless, rugged, uh, brutal, savage. Even predatory, barbarian. And so Darwinian writers began to say the way you the, the way that a man recovers his true self is by getting in touch with the inner barbarian, you know, the inner beast. This is, for example, when um, Tarzan books became popular. <laughs> you know, there were about fifty of them. Did you realize that was a huge The series? interesting
0: thing about Tarzan, though, is that he's he's incredibly moral in the sense of he understands right and wrong, and where does he get that? That's not the law of the jungle. You know, Uh, yes, but I'm not sure that's why he was popular. I'm sure you're you're right. You're right. But it's just, you know, there are a lot of other things that are that that reflect sort of a moralistic kind of a civilized sort of culture. But but you're right. I mean, this idea of this brute male force being in charge and me, 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 Tarzan, you, Jane kind of thing.
1: Well, even at the end of the book, even after he has learned European customs and languages, he says to Jane, I am still a wild beast at heart. And so that was intended and the author did intend that as the message of the book his his son says so by the way i have a quote from his son where he said you know the whole point is to show that we are humans are just part of the animal kingdom and so and there was also a whole genre called literary naturalists and these were men who the best known as jack london these were people who tried to show that we are human beings are just products of natural selection survival of the fittest and so on and how would that affect The view of masculinity. Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God that was implanted in them. Whereas the Darwinian thinkers said, no, no, you find your true self by living down Mm. to animal nature. And there's only a thin veneer of civilization. That was one of their favorite phrases. (laughs) The thin veneer of civilization and the male nature is constantly threatening to break through. And and of course, it's up to women to tame them, but it it, it did lead to a concept of masculinity that, uh, you know, that men are more, just more naturally prone to sin and vice. They're governed by the biological impulses of power and lust and dominance and so on. So Darwin and of course Darwin himself, by the way, did explicitly argue that women are inferior to men, that they're intellectually and otherwise inferior wow. to men. And, well, and we could, Thomas Huxley really did as well.
0: Yeah, well, we could also get into the whole biological difference between men and women. We, we, we've kind of run out of time, but I would urge people to really get the book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And um, Nancy, uh, Doc, Professor Nancy Piercy how can they get the book? Um, um, yes,
1: yes. Well, all the normal places, the Amazon right now... Um, uh, it, I don't know when this is going to run, by the way. <laughs> um, right now, it's you can you can get it on pre-order at, at, or christianbook.com or any of your favorite places. You can go to my website, nancypiercy.com. You can look at all my books. You can order from the website. So wherever you prefer to buy your books.
0: Uh, well, it's a great book. Again, the, the book is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Um, Nancy Piercy, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast.
1: It was delightful to talk with you, Lauren. Thank you.
0: Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.